0: Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim Watt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad.
1: Hi, Tim. Good to be here.
0: And today we're going to do another one of our kind of quick fire um, Q&A episodes, responding to a few questions um, from listeners. Uh, Before we do, just to encourage you to please do carry on emailing in your questions. We really um, love to hear your thoughts and responses to what we've been talking about or suggestions of things that we should tackle in in future episodes. You can get in touch by emailing molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premiere.org.uk. Or you can tweet me, or what's it called these days, X me, on whatever that platform is um at t s wyatt w y a t t um so today's first question uh comes from someone called sw and they were picking up on our our pair of episodes we did about kind of covid reconsidered a few weeks ago and we discussed briefly there about um uh long covid which was obviously a big uh kind of topic of discussion during the pandemic seems to have receded from view but the evidence you were saying suggests that there's still a worryingly high number of people still experience COVID symptoms months, even years later. And we discussed how it might uh, be similar or different to ME or chronic fatigue um, syndrome, ME slash CFS, as it's sometimes known. Uh, And SW says this, um, you mentioned ME and said it was partly psychosomatic and didn't have much research. I've had ME or CFS since 1988 and have been bedbound since 2012, and I wish it were even a little psychosomatic. Living with and managing this illness takes far more discipline and spiritual strength than getting my brown belt in karate ever did. Um, so I guess the question there is, um, were we wrong to describe ME or CFS as partly psychosomatic, and what exactly does it mean to describe something as psychosomatic?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point. I I think, first of all, you know, we just have to recognise that ME or chronic fatigue syndrome um, is very, very common and can be very, very severe and very debilitating. And there's no doubt at all that a very significant number of people listening to this podcast will either have ME of some kind, some kind of chronic fatigue syndrome symptoms, or they will know someone who's been severely affected by it as i do and therefore and i think you know we don't want to minimize in any way the um the level of of suffering and pain and distress interference with life that uh chronic fatigue can produce um but i think it's it's too simplistic to think that diseases are either physical like Uh, an infection with bacteria or that they are uh, purely psychological uh, because, you know, the human body is just so much more complicated than that. And all the evidence is that all disease involves physical and psychological elements um, because the way the body works is um, these things are... Uh, intertwined so even the way the body responds to a physical infection is affected by mental processes by so we know that people who are psychologically depressed uh, are more likely to uh, suffer physical illnesses and their immune responses uh, can be changed by many many uh, non-physical factors and and similarly, uh, having a physical illness has direct effects on, on, on the brain. I mean, a classic example uh, is influenza, which is very well known to be associated with, can be very severe, even life-threatening depression, probably by a direct action on neurotransmitters within the brain. Um, so, I mean, we did a, a session some months ago, didn't we, on mental illness and <clears throat> this idea that There's a physical component, there's a psychological component, there's a relational component, there's a spiritual component, and all of these four levels intertwine and influence what's going on. And so if you think about uh, someone suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome, there's very little doubt that there are physical processes going on, so many of them still poorly understood, inflammatory processes and so on, but inevitably as with all <coughs> diseases there's also going to be a psychological component and indeed you know disease affects relationships and and it affects our spiritual life and all, all the rest so so i i want to express a, a deep level of of sympathy and empathy with with uh, with the listener and 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 again say that in no way we're wanting to minimize the consequences of the disease, but we all need to recognise the complexity um, of the way the human body and human mind work. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would echo everything there. I think
0: it's unfortunate that the conversation around ME and CFS has become so polarised and contentious. I think in a large part, it often feels like people are talking past each other and some of the language is not fully understood. and And so I think, you know, I won't speak for the listener, uh, but but it sounded like they were a little upset because potentially hearing us talk about Emmy is at least partly psychosomatic may have kind of triggered some other, you know, unkind or or hurtful things that they or people in the kind of Emmy community have heard before. You know, there's a lot of anxiety about being told that you're a malingerer or this is about this is weakness. This is invented. This is a fake illness. You just need to get out of bed and get on with your life. And and that's really not what we're talking about when we talk about whether it is psychosomatic or at least partly psychosomatic, Um, because, you know, I'm not a doctor, as you know, but like my understanding is that even illnesses which are entirely psychosomatic can still have very severe physical symptoms, you know, so and even um, an illness which is entirely caused by a psychological problem could still mean that you are genuinely, you know, stuck in bed, wasting away, um, debilitated and and therefore, it's not it's not that that um, no one I think should believe that people experiencing ME or CFS are in some way kind of weak or or have a kind of it's not a personal failure of theirs that they experience this condition. It's just that um, it might be that part of the cause is a poorly understood kind of psychological in in, in their brain, and therefore that matters because that changes how we would treat it. At the same time, there's lots of research going on trying to establish if they are maybe some kind of autoimmune thing, like you mentioned, inflammation response, and there's a lot of research trying to figure out if there's something kind of connection, kind of neurological disorders. So there's a lot, there's a lot of unknowns, aren't there, still around what exactly is going on? There absolutely is. And I think
1: rather than looking for a single cause, <clears throat> it's, it's more helpful to think in terms of these four levels and the way that... Because of the way we're created as human beings, they're all fiendishly uh, complexly interrelated, these different levels. And I think what that means from a therapeutic point of view is that actually it's much better to think uh, of w- when you've got a chronic condition, it's much better to think, let's try and treat at all four levels simultaneously. So you know, if you've got somebody with uh, who's become bedbound with very severe chronic fatigue syndrome, I would want to say, okay, well, let's look at the physical side. Let's look at what physical processes are going on. Let's see what we can do to enhance muscle strength, see what we can do to counter the inflammatory processes. And then I would say, okay, well, now let's look at the psychological level. What can we do to improve mood, to improve outlook? And that's not necessarily just talking about medication. or talking therapy. It, may, it can be just some simple things as getting out in God's good creation, being exposed to beautiful things, uh, and, and so on. And then I'd say, okay, well, let's look at the relational side. What's happened to this person's relationships? Are there ways we can we can strengthen uh, their relationships? Are there broken relationships that need healing and reconciliation? And then spiritually, okay, what's going on in this person's spiritual life? Can we find ways of encouraging and nurturing them. So in the end, it's not that you're coming down as some decision about, well, it's this has caused it, but not this. We just say, it's not clear. All these things are interrelated. Let's attack it at four levels simultaneously. Hmm. I don't know whether you've
0: seen some, there's been some interesting um, news stories and discussions related to the best ways to treat people suffering from ME in here in the UK in recent years. So, um, the, the kind of national guidelines, uh, were kind of recently changed. Uh, and, um, previously they said, you know, uh, people should be offered things, something called graded exercise therapy, Mm. um, which I believe I'm not an expert, but it's basically kind of specialist physiotherapy, which gradually ramps up the amount of physical activity you're able to do. And also CBT, um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a kind of talking therapy, Um, And then in 2021, NICE, which is the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, and kind of sets the guidelines on what the NHS here should and shouldn't offer, said scrapped that and said you shouldn't offer people uh, graded exercise or CBT because there's no evidence to support that. And then now there's been a backlash to the backlash, and there there are studies, just here I'm looking at a story from The Guardian just in July this year, which said that, um, which questioned the NICE review process uh, and, and the study's lead author, Professor Trudy Chalder from the psychiatry department at King's College London, um, basically criticised uh, the decision to change the guidelines has had a direct effect on doctors and therapists' ability to treat patients. And services are no longer able to provide a full range of evidence-based therapeutic interventions. So this is basically an ongoing kind of war within doctors and psychiatrists saying, can we be or should we not be able to do CBT and graded exercise?
1: Yeah, and it just illustrates how even a process such as NICE, which is supposed to be entirely objective, scientific, evidence-based, actually become can become embroiled in very difficult political issues. And I, I gather, and again, I'm, I haven't looked into this in great detail, but I gather that part of the issue with the, those NICE guidelines was that there were a strong representations within the NICE process from ME patient groups and activists and people who were advocates for a particular stance on on ME. And they uh, influenced the NICE guidelines. And then other people who said, uh, you know, withdrew from the process because they said this was no longer and so on and so on. So it just illustrates, doesn't it, that this idea that medicine and, and science can operate in this completely neutral evidence-based zone unfortunately is naive Uh, there's always going to be uh, issues of politics issues of power there's going to be conflicting uh, perspectives and uh, when you're dealing with highly contentious things like ME that the um, the processes uh, like NICE and like other um, regulatory assessments uh, are often extremely complex and contested Does it not depress you, though? I mean, it kind of depresses me, the idea that
0: particular, you know, so, so, you know, to summarize and to be quite crude, ultimately, there's large parts of the kind of ME advocate community who don't want CBT to be on offer, because they believe that if you say CBT is part of the therapeutic response to ME, you are backing up the kind of non-organic, non-biological theory about its cause. And... I you know, I don't know what the evidence says about whether CBT does or doesn't help. You know, I haven't reviewed the studies, I'm not qualified. But it slightly depresses me that that the what as you say, what should be a neutral scientific process of gathering evidence. Like, if it is true that CBT helps people, then we should offer people CBT, even mm. if it make even if it undermines their own kind of mental architecture about what is happening in their bodies. If CBT makes you better, then we should be able to give people CBT. It just depresses me that it's got captured by this this kind of political culture war when really it's about what makes people better.
1: Yeah. um, It it reminds me of of a a debate that, which I know much better, which is about the psychological evidence that abortion does harm to uh, women who've had abortions. Mm. Um, And there have been unbelievable large numbers of published studies on this. uh, And yet it is still depressingly uh, a highly contested space And if you read the literature, as I've tried to do over the years, what becomes apparent is that if the research is being done by pro-choice, pro-abortion researchers, uh, they will find almost without unerringly that abortion is not associated with significant psychological problems. And if the research is being done by pro-life, anti-abortion researchers, they will find almost unerringly that abortion is associated with very significant um uh psychological problems and uh the the scientific process is just not able you know the all the process of peer review of apparently neutral um assessment of evidence it simply isn't capable of overwhelming or 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 of taking account it's always contaminated by, um, by people's prior beliefs and commitments. Mm. And, and when you take something like abortion, which is so deeply held on the two sides, um, it, it's, it, it is extremely difficult to get uh, genuinely objective information. And of course, there is a deeper philosophical point here. And, and it's, the, it's, a, it's, you know, it stems back to Nietzsche, but in particular, it's the 20th century philosopher Foucault who, who basically made the point that whenever we make a truth claim, there is power involved. We are in some way, <clears throat> power relationships have to be uh, considered. It, it's simply naive to think that truth claims within society have no element of power. Now, of course, you can overstate that. The the ultimately cynical view says there is no such thing as truth. Whenever anybody claims anything that's truth, they're simply wanting to persuade you and manipulate you. Now, I I think that's to massively overstate the case. But I think Foucault's genuine insight, which goes back to Nietzsche, is that you cannot disregard power and power relations when you look at people claiming to make statements of truth and maybe my mistake therefore is to
0: is to naively believe that the kind of the scientific method and the and peer review and the evidence gathering process could be separated out from the you know the messy human reality in which it emerges and actually as you say there are some questions which cannot be simply resolved by committees of academics gathering data and reviewing because um you know these you know this ties in the whole kind of replication crisis, you know this idea that actually we've now become so sophisticated in how we do science that actually you can kind of get the result you want even without overt fraud um and therefore there are some things that cannot be easily resolved just by doing more and more and more studies
1: yes i mean i I'm still committed to the idea of uh the attempt to look for objective scientific evidence and to the idea of having integrity in the way that scientific evidence is reviewed. I mean, interestingly, you know, there is a spiritual discipline here because that means, you know, as Christians, we also need to be prepared to acknowledge uh, the painful evidence, which seems to go against the faith, you know, or which seems to, to call into question some of our Christian commitments, um, you know, are we genuinely prepared to be honest and accept the some of the difficult and painful evidence which which we find hard to reconcile with our Christian commitments, or are we so uh, committed to the faith that w- that we're not prepared to acknowledge um, objective evidence? To the contrary, I I, I think these are challenging and difficult questions. I certainly uh, recognize there are deep philosophical and theological issues here. But my view is that is that Christian integrity means that we are prepared to look at the evidence uh, objectively and acknowledge problematic um, information, evidence and so on. Hmm. And
0: for me, it ultimately comes down to whether you believe God can speak truth to us through observation of the world that he made. And I, I do. I do fundamentally believe that, it. you know, there's Christian traditions which says, you know, the only trustworthy data is in scripture. Or other people say the only trustworthy information is what we've received directly in kind of inspiration from the Holy Spirit. But actually, I believe that that God also can speak truth to us through through the, the world and so therefore we do have to take seriously the idea of of looking into his created order and discerning truth from it
1: yeah and philosophically this is a position which is often called critical realism um what it realism says that our minds are capable of grasping reality there is an objective reality out there and for all the flaws and and, and limitations of our human minds they are capable of grasping reality but critical realism says we can't be naive about our ability to deceive ourselves uh, and about the fact that that it is possible to get completely deluded or misled and therefore we 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 constantly have to check and question and have this critical question about uh, our, our grasp on the external world and our, our world and our grasp on truth
0: of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, this conversation has actually meanderingly ended up leading us nicely into our second question from a listener, um, which is completely different, but is also about how do we grasp truth and how do we assess claims of reality? Uh, It says this, um, I'm going to a university seminar next week on how to do university assessments now that ChatGPT is available. Given that these kind of assessments are used as measures of competence in all sorts of different places, and that ChatGPT can now give us a convincing answer to an essay question, what implications does that have for how we assess human knowledge and competence in whatever sphere?
1: Yeah, this this is a fascinating um, issue, and one which is causing anxiety and concern in academic circles around the world, uh, particularly in in uh, high schools in uh, colleges in undergraduate education even postgraduate uh, research and so on and and that is the ability of these large language models incidentally chat gpt is just one there are now already tens of um, similar fundamentally similar uh, programs uh, constantly being rolled out some of them and they're constantly advancing in their abilities and they're being tweaked um, and and the the rate of progress is absolutely astonishing but I, anyway these large language models which are freely available are extraordinarily powerful at creating uh, apparently uh convincing uh text on, on on almost anything and therefore the temptation for students to to use these techniques uh in order to um write essays on any topic they like, uh, produce submissions, uh, even write papers, uh, write academic papers, um, and, uh, is enormous. And at the moment, um, the ability to detect these um, uh, texts that has been produced by one of these large language modules is very, very um, inaccurate. So there are some programmes around which claim to be able to detect Um, plagiarism but they have a very high level of both false positives and false negatives and that means that a student who has genuinely written their own essay could find that they're hauled up in front of the authorities and told we are convinced you did this by a computer and we're going to you know we're going to fine you or we're going to you know and, and and how do you prove it how do you um so so this is an extraordinarily difficult area and and Although there are lots of attempts going on to try to solve the problem, I personally at the moment think it's it's very difficult to see how it could be solved. And therefore, some more radical suggestions are being made. And that is that we should, instead of trying to ban these things, we should positively encourage students to use them and to be critical about their the positives and negatives. Um you know, that we just have to change, you know, we have on, uh, and isn't this extraordinary, you know, how, how a technological development could suddenly mean that the entire process of academic... The death of the vision, essay, you know, a, a, well, form, a
0: format which has been around for thousands of years.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, at least the death of it as it used to be um the only way you could you could recover it is under exam conditions Hand and even written, then yeah. no doubt there will be huge numbers of ways of you know special watches that can be <laughs> receiving text and hidden yeah. <laughs> hidden sensors and all the rest so so um i it it, it is fascinating and i i think at the moment the jury is all out I, i'm very interested about academic writing like um even you know scientific papers uh, academic uh, even books um you know and i've i've to be honest i I've, I've been just experimenting a little with with some of these large language models particularly trying to put in some deep theological and spiritual questions and seeing what the responses are and actually i have to say i've been astonished at the level of Um, sophistication and insight uh, that sometimes these models can produce. And and I think this goes back to our understanding of how these things work, that that effectively what has happened is that they're trained on text, which millions of human beings have created. I mean, including large amounts of books, books, of uh, academic articles, Wikipedia articles, and so on. But all that text was actually came out of a human mind and encoded in that text was a whole lot of deeper understandings about reality, understandings of human relationships, understandings even of God and, and spiritual things. They're all encoded in those words. And what has happened is that as those words have been processed, in this astonishingly, mind-bogglingly complex way, it appears that the programmes are increasingly able to extract the fundamental meaning behind those words and then reprocess that in a way which human minds can understand. And And that is both exciting uh, and remarkable, but also quite scary, because increasingly it seems that abilities that seem to be unique to the human mind are now being encoded within these uh, vastly complex programs and what the implications will be for the future as these things get better and better. uh, Are they going increasingly to to provide a source of genuine wisdom, insight uh, and so on?
0: Yeah, and that's, I think, probably the critical question is to what extent are these simply kind of remixing and rehashing and reformulating the genuine creativity and insight of other human beings which they've scraped off the internet or to what extent is something some kind of new there is some genuine uh, you know creation going on in in the software and i guess that's part of the ch- challenge is that it's very hard for us to tell because you know traditionally when you when you you know for years now there's been software as you say which checks University submissions and essays and things for for plagiarism and just will you know see if any of these words appear in the same order elsewhere. But we know with ChatGPT the words are spat out in a genuinely novel way. It's not just copying mm, and pasting absolutely. from something it's read. It's digesting fifty thousand articles on this topic and turning them into a new one. But mm. it's still, I think, unclear whether. It, it has the veneer of creativity and of authenticity because it is not plagiarized. But ultimately, is it still just a glorified autocomplete, which has digested <laughs> 50,000 versions of something and then can predict the most likely word to appear next? Or, yeah. and then that, because the question there comes, you know, a lot of material on the internet now has been generated by large language models. And as they continue to scrape, they're now scraping not actual human creativity, but other AI output. And does that yeah. start to diminish the quality and you know all that stuff? So there's a lot of question, open questions there about, will there, there they be able to sustain uh, this level of apparent innovation and creativity?
1: Yes. I, I think that is a very well-recognized issue that these things become feed on themselves. And then the whole mathematics actually falls apart. Once that happens, the way in which these things are designed starts to fall apart. I think, all the creators of these models are well aware of that problem and they will be going to enormous lengths to try and avoid it from happening. But just but going back... As you say, back... we don't know
0: how to tell currently if text is Well, of course, that's being... the problem. So we but can't just... necessarily identify what is and isn't AI-generated.
1: It's, it's, a, it's a problem. Just going back, though, I think it's fascinating to think about the process of human creativity. You know, how genuinely creative has John Wyatt? You know, I have written... Good question. ...some books... <laughs> They weren't plagiarized, honest, Tim. I didn't just (laughs) copy it out word for word. I actually, those words came out of my head. But where did I come? Where did those ideas come from? Where did those words come from? Uh, Weren't they just rehashed Hmm. from stuff that I'd read, from stuff that I'd come across elsewhere? I was just taking those same ideas and putting them in a slightly novel twist. But how genuinely creative is John Wyatt's? Um, and therefore, you know, is there a fundamental difference between the, the creativity of a human thinker who is basically rehashing old ideas and the, and the creativity? Of a machine. I mean, I mean that's a philosophical easy, question that's hard to answer, isn't it? It, it isn't I, straightforward. No.
0: I mean, am I your genuine <laughs> creation? Or am I just a rehash of DNA from two different sources, <laughs> not genuinely innovative at all? Yeah, well, that's true of all of us, isn't it, mate? Um, but, <laughs> but, yes. But, I mean, I guess I would, <laughs> to push back on that, there is a tradition, at least, I'm I'm aware that this is a kind of contested idea in philosophy, but there's a tradition, at least, that, like, you know, you have You can have thesis and antithesis and then synthesis, and that even if even if that yes all you know every everyone who comes up with an idea is to an extent drawing on prior sources and standing on the shoulders of giants who've come before them, but there is still a skill involved in saying you know two people could read the same sources and one person can rehash it, but the second person who's more intelligent creative whatever word you want to use is able to take the same knowledge and with it move a step forward up the ladder of knowledge and that's fundamentally you know what people are trying to achieve you know in the humanities for example is you know we're not you know when I was doing my history degree I wasn't expected to get out there onto the battlefield of this ancient history and do some digging and find new data I was only working with what's already been published in a library but the theory and the hope was that I was training my mind and that I was able to take all these secondary sources or primary sources of other people's hard work and come up with a genuinely like creative re synthesis of their ideas. Does that not sound? Does that not count as real creativity?
1: And clearly, your examiners <laughs> thought that you did, Tim. Because if I seem to remember, you got a first class honours. Ted, stop it! You're embarrassing me. <laughs> but uh, the question is, Tim: Could a large language model have done just as well? And that's, Mm. you know, and and that's the question, isn't it? So I I think my personal take on this would be that there's no doubt that there are the genuine moments of of creation. You know, perhaps most of us are lucky if we have one or two (laughs) moments in a lifetime. You know, if you're Einstein or (laughs) uh, (laughs) Richard Feynman or someone else, you know, some amazingly creative thinker, you come up with lots of them. But and and i think it's it's unrealistic to think that large language models are going to do that anytime soon but i think what they do show is that so much of human output is pretty boilerplate um going around, familiar yeah. <laughs> loops that's certainly true uh, you speak as a journalist i speak as a writer you know and and i think that increasingly these models are going to turn out to be extremely <laughs> Good at producing boilerplate to a to a high standard and
0: going back to the original question then should we tear up our existing models of kind of assessing competence you know it's not just in the university setting but lots of workplaces will say you know pass an exam or 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 do a piece of writing and that means that you can go on to the next pay grade or get a promotion do you think you know we either do what you suggested which is say let let rip use an llm and you know part of your your skills is learning how to prompt it well you know and that makes me think of you know the people who say you know in athletics the battle against doping is futile yeah, really we yeah. should let people go at it and say part of the part of the competition is how well can you use the drugs that you can use with your physical attributes to, to run fastest or jump highest or do you think we tear up the whole idea of written assessment and we and we go back to, we say we're going to have to come up with new ways to assess competence which will involve you know p- spoken interviews or some other form of of assessment.
1: It's a really interesting and difficult question. And and, let me go to something I do know something about, and that is being a doctor and also testing medical students and so on. (laughs) And certainly still to the present, and it's been going on for thousands of years, we have felt that before you give someone their license to kill and you, you know, you send them out into the world as a qualified doctor, um, They've got to demonstrate this ability to think logically and rationally and retrieve medically important information under the testing conditions of an oral examination without any kind of help. Um, Is that right? So all medical degrees still involve oral examination? They absolutely do. And they also involve clinical examination with a, in other words, examine this patient and tell me what you find and 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 ask the patient some questions and um and it's and it's scary and it, and the same you know having gone through that ordeal and then having done it to lots of generations of medical students i know how scary and demanding it is but we all of us feel this is really important because the idea is you know when some catastrophe is happening and you are alone trying to save someone's life and there's no access to the internet and there's no access to a, a senior colleague what are you going to fall back on um you're going to fall back on the basic knowledge which is hard won over six years plus um in order to try and work out what to do and 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 you want to weed out people who are book smart and could ace the
0: medical exam by regressing the textbook, but have got no actual ability um, on the war
1: dealing with a real-life human being. Exactly. And in in particular, a large, large part of being a good clinical doctor is common sense, you know, and not, you know, knowing the latest paper in The Lancet. Um, Having said that, you see, people look ahead to the future of the medicine and they say, You know, how often is it going to be that we're going to have this poor, solitary doctor in disaster trying to save people's lives? In reality, most of what doctors do day in, day out is much closer to health informatics. It's sifting database evidence. It'll be using the new tools. They're already making specialised large language models just for medicine um, and training them on specifically medical databases. And the idea being that they would be constantly available to clinicians. Um, so, you know, what's the future of medicine? Is it, is it going to be more like health informatics? In which case, maybe we don't. My own take for what it's worth is that we are going to have to generate a whole new classes of people like, like health database anal- analysis and health informatics and so on. But we are still going to need perhaps a much smaller number of old-fashioned physicians trained the old-fashioned hard way who've got it in their heads and can function um, without the constant access to to databases and so on. And you know, as a paediatrician, that there are certain
0: classes of patient, you know, who need a particularly human touch, and it's not as simple as just scraping the data from their physical body and running it through a database. But when you're dealing with young patients, for example, the doctors need, you know, and I've seen this as a parent now taking our daughter to various pediatricians and, and children's hospitals, you need, there is, a, there is a qualitative difference between a doctor who knows how to engage with the young person and treat them well, and someone who's got all the theory, but doesn't know, have a clue how to, you know, persuade a two year old to actually
1: collaborate in the process. Absolutely right. Yeah, and of course, that's the that's part of the fun and the challenge, and the difficulty of pediatrics is uh, is engaging uh, relationally with with children and 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 finding ways of of, of getting them to engage and, and to comply and so on. Yeah, and also I think <clears throat> particularly where you're looking at medical disasters or people who are dying, tragedies and so on again, this this human solidarity of somebody who can hold a hand, of someone who will weep with me, who will, who will walk the path, who will be the mm-hmm. presence, you know, this is something which no health informatics expert is going to be able and to And is that speak. assessed
0: and examined at present? You know, do you choose medical students not just for how good they are at being doctors, but for how warm and human and pastoral and
1: caring they are? And the answer is yes. At least in many medical schools, including in in mine in London, uh, and and what you do is you use actors <clears throat> as uh, patients, um, and they are given a script, and then the medical student comes in and has to engage um, and demonstrate that they can be empathic. and um, And uh, having watched these actors and worked with them, I I can testify to how extraordinarily sophisticated and brilliant professional actors can be in making it feel utterly real. You know, this feels absolutely real. What, so uh, they're like breaking
0: down in tears or something yeah, yeah. and the doc- and the medical student exactly. has to walk them through telling them that they've got terminal illness.
1: <laughs> I, re- I remember a slightly surreal experience because one of the ways they do medical assessment is, is that you have this, the thing is called an OSCE, which stands for something. I can't remember what, but you have, you have basically 10 or 15 minutes at each station all these stations are set up and then these nervous <laughs> examinees go from station to station you know and I was doing one station where it, oh there was an ethical problem and I was putting them some ethical issue but in the next door was an actor who who was acting an elderly lady who was sick and needed to come into hospital but didn't want to come into hospital and the and, and the poor medical student had to engage with them and try and persuade them. And every fifteen minutes, I could hear coming through the wall. Oh, I don't want to go in hospital. I'm sorry. I want to stay home. <laughs> and I just—what was so extraordinary was the professionalism. Like every fifteen minutes, instead of I'll oh, blow this, <laughs> every fifteen minutes, this lady was doing the. Oh my god! What a
0: job! <laughs> what, what a, a job! job. <laughs> And if I'm the medical student, I'm terrified that basically my ability to get my license to practice relies on persuading this in- recalcitrant forty-something man who's pretending to be an eighty-year-old woman to cooperate with me. And if he decides I'm going to really ramp it up, you know, and really put my foot down, you, you what do you do? I mean, you're, you're in their hands to an extent.
1: Well, yes, you are, but you, you know, again, it's but the examiner is watching all this. Yeah. And giving you marks out.
0: Well, maybe, maybe OSCIs are the way we need to move forward in other subjects. You know, maybe the, the, the era of the LLM and chat GPT is going to put put paid to this written assessment. And we're going to all be doing these, these you know, acting out. I mean, I did it as my journalism training where, yeah. you know, we were sent to go and do a pseudo interview with someone. And um, which was one of our one of our lecturers. And the trick was there was a story behind the story and you had to ask certain questions and it would gradually te- and tease out the actual real information and then go away and write it up. And half of us, I have to say, including myself, managed to get the story, the real oh, story. Yes, the other half wrote this very tedious kind of boilerplate stuff about the service level story. And and it was all about like training and how you ask questions and probe and stuff. So yeah, it is already a thing, but I, I yeah, it'd be fascinating to see how the, a, the era of assessment changes. We've, we've talked for a long time. Shall we, Shall we wrap it up there?
1: Yeah, I, I think we'll come back to this. I mean, I've no doubt that large language models um, are going to recur, yeah. uh, come back. You know, th- this is not going to go away. It's changing the whole society. But yeah, I think we've probably been around this loop enough here and now. Great. Well, thanks everyone
0: um, for listening. As Just a reminder, we're um, we going to carry on doing these semi-regularly, these Q&A episodes. Um, so please do carry on sending in your, your questions. You can email us molad at premier.org.uk. Or you can tweet me, I'm at T.S. Wyatt on Twitter, or whatever it's called these days. Um, uh, and don't forget to, to head over to Dad's website, johnwyatt.com. Lots more interesting things to read and listen although to, to be watch. honest
1: it's all been just rehashed from old material and, and, and <laughs> there's you may nothing not genuinely created there at 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 all. Genuinely don't created.
0: waste your time actually <laughs> just go and ask ChatGPT about your ethical <laughs> yes, that's much more likely to get an interesting original answer um and uh um we will we will see you again next week Bye bye
1: From Premier
0: Unbelievable.